Amash wants him impeached, joining a chorus of Democrats demanding the same. Well, it's a pretty small chorus. And Amash didn't say he wanted him impeached. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Other than that, right on the money. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day for you on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is good-ish to be back (laughs) with my thanks to our old friend Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show. Yes, thank As you so heard much, Nicole. On NicoleZandler.com, of course, for uh, yeah, filling in for us on our previous broadcast. It is great to hear her back. And uh, hopefully she will be able to join us more often in the future. Thanks, Nicole. Much appreciated. Another friend, author, and fair elections advocate and gerrymandering foe, David Daly, will be joining us in a bit with some thoughts as he uh, recently shared at the New Republic on how the recent spate of extreme anti-abortion laws and much more can be directly attributed to unconstitutional Republican gerrymandering in GOP-controlled state after GOP-controlled state. But we've got a lot to catch up from uh, over the weekend and today first. uh, For one, Desi Doyen, an issue I know you've been uh, warning about now for weeks and watching very closely of late, As NBC reports today, dozens of counties across Texas and Oklahoma are under the most severe tornado warning on Monday after a weekend full of twisters tore roofs off houses, ripped down power lines. As many as 67 tornadoes were reported between Friday and Sunday in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Kansas and Nebraska. 67 The series of storms and extreme warnings uh, fall on the sixth anniversary 
of the tornado, which you may recall from 2013, tore through the Oklahoma suburb of Moore, that year killing 24 people and injuring 212 others. Uh, many of those 24 were at a, a school in Oklahoma City, as I recall, where a lot of the schools, incredibly enough, in the middle of tornado country in Oklahoma, don't have tornado shelters. Is no, that- most of the cities, most of the towns, most of the schools do not. Which is insane. It is insane. And as someone who grew up in tornado country myself in Missouri, uh, I remember many a day and night heading down to our basement amidst these warnings. Because you lived in a state with basements. Because we lived in a state with basements, And yeah. most homes in Oklahoma do not have basements. They're too expensive to build. So because of that, the cities and the states and the towns don't have that as part of their building code. But why bother? Why bother? Those kids can... Fend for themselves. Makes them tougher, I guess. The uh, warnings issued today follow that swarm over the weekend also come just a few days before the uh, eighth anniversary of the tornado that devastated the town of Joplin, Missouri, back in 2011. That tornado, you may recall, killed 158 people in the town of Joplin, which is not a huge town, by the way. 158 people had injured more than 1,000 others. It was the deadliest since modern record-keeping began in, the, uh, in 1950. It is ranked seventh among the deadliest tornadoes in U.S. history, according to the National Weather Service. But that extreme weather uh, from over the weekend has now continued uh, through Monday. Most of Oklahoma, northwest Texas... And the eastern Texas panhandle are uh, bracing for numerous intense long track tornadoes with hurricane force winds expected, along with baseball sized hail, according to the National Weather Service today. Kansas and Arkansas and Missouri and elsewhere should expect warnings and watches over the next several days as well. Parts of the already soaked southern plains are expecting two to three inches of rain per hour. 10 million people are currently under flash flood warnings as of airtime today. Uh, Desi, I know you've reported on an increase in the number of and and intensity of tornadoes in our climate changed world. If I uh, recall on our Green News reports, Uh, have you seen any data about an increase in tornado swarms? It seems like we're getting more and more of those in recent years. Well, okay. so first of all, I have to make this very clear that the data on tornadoes is very mixed because there's not a whole lot of data to start with because tornadoes often happen in rural areas where either nobody sees them or they can't be confirmed or they're not exactly showing up on satellites because they're too small. So that's why we have a lot of mixed data so far. But yes, there does seem to be a trend toward an increase in these outbreaks of tornado swarms. There also seems to be a trend toward more of the highest intensity tornadoes. In other words, there may not be more tornadoes individually, but the swarms seem to be happening more often and the strongest tornadoes seem to be happening more often. And also a study we reported on a couple of weeks ago in the Green News report that Tornado Alley has moved about 150 miles east. So that is more dangerous for folks in states that aren't used to having more tornadoes. All great news amidst our climate crisis. That is climate change, changing the baseline of all of our weather systems. So we live in a warmer, more volatile weather systems now. In some other news of note that is likely to get lost uh, as quickly as it broke today amidst tornadoes and Hurricane Trump in the White House. Hey, are you tired of all the winning yet? 
Are you enjoying that ec- uh, economy on rocket fuel that uh, Trump promised thanks to that $1.5 trillion in tax cuts for mostly rich people and huge corporations that were supposed to add up to jobs, jobs, jobs as far as the eye could see? How about all those jobs in the auto industry that we were uh, we were going to bring back here thanks to Trump threatening Mexico and Canada and demanding that the auto industry jobs be brought back to the country after he renegotiated NAFTA? Remember that? Well, Ford Motor Company workers were informed by letter that uh, on Monday that 500 salaried workers are now getting laid off and will have to clear out their desks by the end of the week. And that's just the first wave of layoffs in the U.S. that is expected to hit 800 by the end of June and much more by the end of summer, according to Ford CEO Jim Hackett. In his uh, letter to all employees, Hackett wrote that the cuts will reduce the management ranks by 20 percent, but result in annual savings to the company of $600 million. Really? Even after all that money that the company did not have to pay in taxes that was supposed to go to jobs, 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 they still have to do this? Ford's move comes as the U.S. auto industry finds itself united in opposition to Donald Trump's threats to impose tariffs on cars and car parts imported from the European Union and from Japan. There was no immediate response from the White House to Hackett's announcement, which is odd because, you know, Trump, for some reason, he never tweets about all of the corporate layoffs. But if someone adds 10 jobs somewhere, he not only tweets it out in all caps, he takes credit for it. Last year, 1,500 Ford workers took voluntary buyouts. Ford is undergoing what they describe as an organizational redesign process. Uh, helping us create a more dynamic, agile, and empowered workforce. Empowered by being out of a job, I guess, while becoming more fit as a business. That, according to company spokesman, by the end of the process in August, we expect to have eliminated about 7,000 salaried positions or about 10% of our global salaried workforce. That's a lot of empowerment right there for and, those workers, huh? And also notice that they say salaried workers, which means they could probably be pushing toward more temp workers, folks who can't rely then on having mm, a steady job. Contractors, yeah. That $11 billion restraint, well, that'll make them more empowered, though, does. Don't worry. The $11 billion restructuring of Ford has also involved closing several plants, ditching the North American sedan market, and some good news, I guess, investing billions into electric and self-driving cars. No, that's what they say. That's what they... Well, you're dubious? I'm a bit dubious on that. But last year, uh, the uh, CEO of the company, Hackett, don't worry about him, he got a 6% raise last year. That brings his total compensation package to nearly $18 million, including $1.8 million base salary, $12.7 million in stock awards, and $3.2 million in other compensation. Well, this may uh, empower workers by firing them, but I suspect it'll boost Hackett's Ford stock options. So, hey, win-win for everyone but the workers, of course. 
Ford's not the only automaker to stage these mass layoffs this year. Uh, GM in February announced it was laying off 4,000 workers. In March, GM announced it was shuttering the sprawling Lordstown plant in Ohio and eliminating 1,700 hourly positions. And yet, as the media tells us, many of these suckers in so-called Trump country are still said to be sticking with this president. We will see if that stays. But Republicans... Uh, one Republican, at least, who isn't sticking with the president, I'm happy to say, is perhaps the only intellectually honest Republican Congress member left in the House since the death of North Carolina's Walter Jones earlier this year. On Friday, Nicole Sandler talked with former Senate counsel uh, Lisa Graves about what's the holdup when it comes to impeachment of our criminal president. And one of these holdups as Democrats like to say, seems to be the difficulty in finding Republicans willing to go along with them. At least that's what Democrats tell us, since they can impeach in the House with a majority of Democrats there, but they would need two, a two-thirds vote in the Republican-controlled U.S. Senate to convict and remove Trump from office. Now, I have been arguing that it does not matter whether Republicans go along with it or not. If impeachable offenses were carried out, and clearly they were, then the case should be made to the American people as constitutionally required, in my opinion, and let the chips fall where they may. I think uh, those who think they know that Republicans will not go along once all of this stuff is actually put out in front of them, in front of the American public in, in televised hearings and a trial in the Senate, that I think those folks are just guessing. And in the bargain, they're giving Republicans veto power over whether a Republican president at least can ever be impeached. Well, Michigan's GOP congressman Justin Amash said Saturday that he had concluded President Trump's uh, President Trump committed, quote, impeachable conduct. And he accused Attorney General William Barr of intentionally misleading the public. Amash's comments uh, recommending Congress pursue obstruction of justice charges against Trump are the first instance of a sitting Republican in Congress saying the president's conduct meets the, quote, threshold for impeachment. Well, good for him. Amash is a libertarian conservative elected during the Tea Party wave of 2010. He was a founding member of the what was the Tea Party caucus, now calls themselves the House Freedom Caucus, which is a key block of Republicans who have worked to shift the GOP caucus far to the right on many issues. But in the Trump era, CNN notes, uh, Amash has found himself breaking with his pretend conservative allies who have embraced the anything but conservative president and his anything but conservative policies. They are extremist right wing policies, but they are not conservative unless, you know, I don't know, blowing a one point five trillion dollar hole in the deficit is now considered to be conservative. So uh, you may have heard about this over the weekend, but I wanted to share with you the specific tweet thread in which Amash explained his position because it's important and correct. And I don't think folks, uh, most folks have actually read it or heard of it, uh, heard it uh, other than above and beyond that, you know, oh, there is uh, the first Republican calling for Trump's impeachment. So let me try to get through as much of this as I can before I get to my guest here. Justin Amash, Michigan congressman in the first tweet in the thread. Here are my principal conclusions. One, 
Attorney General Barr has deliberately misrepresented Mueller's report. He has, and good for him for saying so. Two, President Trump has engaged in impeachable conduct. Three, partisanship has eroded our system of checks and balances. Four, members of Congress have, uh, few, I'm sorry, few members of Congress have read the report, the Mueller report he's talking about there. Uh, let me hit this one point first. Has engaged in impeachable conduct. Well, that sure sounds like he's calling for impeachment. And a lot of the uh, media outlets covered it that way, but not necessarily. And for that, I think we can thank the Democrats, including House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler, who said a few months back when he was asked by CNN's Jake Tapper what he meant, what Nadler meant by uh, claiming the president had committed impeachable offense. But that does not necessarily mean that he should be impeached. Can you explain what you mean when you differentiate between maybe these are, if it's proven, it's impeachable offenses, but that does not necessarily mean that the offenses themselves are important enough to actually begin proceedings of impeachment. There seems to be a, a difference there in your view. Why? It's not necessarily a difference, but it's simply two different considerations. Uh, you don't necessarily launch an impeachment against the president because he committed an impeachable offense. Uh, there are several things you have to look at. One, were there impeachable offenses committed? How many, etc.? And secondly, how important were they? Do they rise to the gravity where you should undertake an impeachment? An impeachment is, is an attempt to, to, in effect, overturn or change the result of the last election. You should do it only for very serious situations. So that's always the question. Mm, it seems to me this is a very serious situation. Yeah, is he basically saying these were serious, but they're not serious, they're not impeachy enough. Exactly. And, and now that was late in uh, late last year, uh, in December of last year, and clearly the Democrats are moving forward with these investigations, whether they want to call them impeachment or not. They seem to be moving inescapably in that direction. Uh, and Donald Trump seems to be working very hard to make uh, to, to frankly give them no choice but to do the constitutional thing and impeach this guy. I think they should. I think Donald Trump thinks it may help him. I think he may be very wrong about that. But that's where this idea comes from that, you know, there is impeachable conduct, but that's not necessarily impeachable. Or something. Enough. I mean, it's, it's really that's... it's incomprehensible, in my opinion. And by the way, I'm, you know, someone uh, people had claimed that uh, Barack Obama committed impeachable conduct by assassinating uh, uh, American citizens with drones. And you know what? I wouldn't have been against bringing a, a, an impeachment on those issues because right now Donald Trump will feel free to do the same and he will just cite Barack Obama. I don't think Obama should necessarily have been removed from office from it, but bring an impeachment. Have the investigation. Uh, have the investigation, and if you want, have a trial in the Senate and see how that goes. See if he's convicted. Back to Justin Amash here and his tweet thread. He says, I offer these conclusions only after having read Mueller's redacted report carefully and completely, having read or watched pertinent statements and testimony, and having discussed this matter with my staff who thoroughly reviewed materials and provided me with further analysis. In comparing Attorney General Barr's initial principal conclusions, congressional testimony and other statements to Mueller's report, it is clear that Barr intended to mislead the public about special counsel Robert Mueller's analysis and findings. Good for Justin Amash for only that much for calling out 
Attorney General Barr for, you know, being a cover up artist for this scoundrel swindler president. Amash goes on to say uh, to write Barr's misrepresentations are significant, but often subtle, frequently taking the form of sleight of hand qualifications or logical fallacies, which he hopes people will not notice. Under our Constitution, the president, quote, shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. While high crimes and misdemeanors is not defined, notes Amash, the context implies conduct that violates the public trust. Contrary to Barr's portrayal, Mueller's report reveals that President Trump engaged in specific actions and a pattern of behavior that meet the threshold for impeachment. Well, good. Then let's impeach him, Congressman. Please put your money where your mouth is and sign Rashida Tlaib's already introduced articles of impeachment, please. In fact, back to Amash. Uh, in fact, Mueller's report identifies multiple examples of conduct satisfying all the elements of obstruction of justice. And un undoubtedly, any person who is not president of the United States would be indicted based on such evidence. And that judgment, I should note here, is also supported by more than now 900 former federal prosecutors who have all signed on to a letter reaffirming that precise point, that had this evidence been presented for anyone other than the president of the United States, who the DOJ pretends cannot be indicted, had anybody else had this evidence against, held against them, they would have been charged for obstruction of justice. Back to the Republican Justin Amash. Impeachment, he writes, uh, which is a special form of indictment, does not even require probable cause that a crime, for example, obstruction of justice, has been committed. It simply requires a finding that an official has an engaged in careless, abusive, corrupt or otherwise dishonorable conduct. While impeachment should be undertaken only in extraordinary circumstances, the risk we face in an environment of extreme partisanship, he says, is not that Congress will employ it as a remedy too often, but that Congress will employ it so rarely that it cannot deter misconduct. And that is what I have argued uh, that Democrats uh, risk right now by not bringing impeachment proceedings after so many obvious high crimes and misdemeanors from this president. If not him, then whom? Who will you ever impeach? The impeachment clause becomes effectively defunct, at least for Republican presidents, if not for Democratic ones, because you know uh, had a, a Democratic president done a tenth of what this guy ha has done, he would have already long ago been removed from office. Congressman Amash says our system of checks and balances relies on each branch, each branches jealously guarding its powers and upholding its duties under our Constitution when loyalty to a political party or to an individual trumps loyalty to the Constitution, the rule of law. The foundation of liberty crumbles. Few members of Congress even read Mueller's report. He says their minds were made up based on partisan affiliation, and it showed with representatives and senators from both parties issuing definitive statements 
on the 448-page report's conclusions within just hours of its release. America's institutions depend on officials to uphold both the rule of law and spirit of our constitutional system, even when to do so is personally inconvenient or yields a politically unfavorable outcome. Our Constitution is brilliant and awesome. He says it deserves a government to match it. Hard to disagree with the Republican congressman there, and good for him. Happy to award him the rarely bestowed Brad Blog Intellectually Honest Conservative Award today. Jennifer Rubin of The Washington Post notes that we can marvel at Amash's intellectual and moral clarity and applaud his courage. However, he's just saying indisputable facts and refusing to go along with the scheme to distract voters from the magnitude of Trump's offenses. Unfortunately, that is what counts for courage these days, she writes. She's right. Hard to... Uh, Hard to disagree with that. Uh, but uh, Donald Trump had no problem disagreeing with uh, with Amash. He called him uh, a total lightweight and a loser on Twitter today, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, and so far, few actually know other elected officials, uh, elected Republican officials in Congress have joined Amash's call, although Senator Mitt Romney said it was a courageous statement. He didn't go along with it. Uh, anyway, I think Mitt Romney uh, probably didn't read that document either or when he says he came to a different conclusion that actually he's a liar or he has no idea how the law works. I don't know or all of the above, but uh, at least good for Justin Amash. I suspect we'll we'll uh, have much more unavoidable talk about impeachment in the coming days. Uh, and I got to get to my guest here, but I wanted to lay out that argument uh, from Amash if if the actual facts are seen, I believe there is no question about not only the impeachability of this president, but the need, the duty, the constitutional mandate to impeach him. Uh, as I suspect, many more Republicans will also begin to understand in the coming days if and when the case is laid out before the American people so that even Republicans must be forced to address it, because apparently that's going that's what it's going to take. All right. In the meantime, most of the Republicans, at least those remaining in the House, have no worries at all, at least for now, because they have gerrymandered themselves into virtually undefeatable seats. That's a problem. But the even bigger problem is the very real consequences for you and me and the nation of that. You can look no further than the spate of extremist, radical anti-abortion measures now being passed in GOP state after GOP state. That story is next with author and gerrymandering foe Dave Daly on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks.
still is. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, we have talked a lot about gerrymandering on this program in recent years, specifically extreme partisan gerrymandering of the type that resulted, for example, in North Carolina congressional Democrats winning more than 48 percent of the votes in the battleground state of North Carolina last November in that blue tsunami election, but winning only three of the state's 13 U.S. House seats. The results in Ohio were no better for Democrats. In uh, neither state did Democrats pick up any House seat from a Republican despite uh, the blue wave and despite winning nearly 50 percent of the vote in both states, with Republicans still currently in control of 16 of Ohio's 20 congressional seats. That's right. Democratic uh, U.S. House candidates won about half of the votes in the Buckeye state last November, yet won only four of 20 seats in their U.S. congressional delegation. We've reported on similarly woeful stories in key states like Wisconsin and Michigan, where Republicans following the 2010 census redistricted maps to all but guarantee GOP majorities for the next decade in both Congress and state legislatures. In state after state, where the GOP controlled the redistrict, redistricting process at the time, after the last decennial census in 2010, lawmakers used the power of their majorities to retain those majorities for the next 10 years, largely no matter how voters would end up voting over those years. And in state after state, those extreme partisan gerrymanders have been challenged in courts and found to be unconstitutional repeatedly by federal district and U.S. appellate courts alike. Late last month, a three-judge federal panel ruled that Michigan's uh, congressional and state legislative maps are unconstitutionally gerrymandered, ordering state officials to redraw at least 34 districts before the 2020 election, including a bunch of State Senate districts where elections weren't scheduled to be held until 2022. The appeals court ordered a new, uh, new maps to be drawn for those districts and new elections to be held in 2020 instead because they were so radically uh, gerrymandered. A week or so later, in early April, in the aforementioned Ohio, a three-judge panel of the U.S. District Court ruled unanimously that district boundaries were manipulated for partisan gain by Republican mapmakers and that they violate voters' rights to democratically select their representatives. The ruling blocks Ohio from holding another election under the current map. But uh, in both cases, as you may have guessed, uh, they, those rulings are being appealed by Republicans. But beyond the clear inequity to voters that this decade-long scam instituted by the GOP's so-called red map program that Republicans put in place in states across the country before the 2010 elections to pull off this disenfranchisement scheme, uh, these partisan gerrymanders have a very real effect on actual public policy. And that effect is likely to be felt for generations in this country not unlike the Republicans' 2016 theft of the U.S. Supreme Court majority. Given the spate of repeated court rulings against Republican states in the past two years for their unconstitutional gerrymanders, 
I think it's fair to say that many of them have also stolen majorities in Congress and in state legislatures across the country, just as the Republicans stole the judiciary branch with their coup at the U.S. Supreme Court in Barack Obama's final year as president. A stolen judiciary branch, a stolen legislative branch, and as to the White House and the executive branch, well, whether that was stolen or not is an issue we discussed with even more regularity on this program. So I'll set that one aside for the moment. But Dave Daly, who literally wrote the book on the GOP's extreme red map partisan gerrymandering, explained in an article at The New Republic late last week, it's not just voter representation itself and the number of seats that each party has that is affected by all of this. It is actual policy that affects all of us. The recent spate of extreme anti-abortion statutes being adopted in GOP-controlled state after GOP-controlled state, Daly argues, is a direct consequence of that unconstitutional political gamesmanship, which the U.S. Supreme Court has allowed to continue now for years, despite so many lower court rulings to try to end it. That even as the high court once again weighs a decision as to whether they will finally agree with dozens of lower courts and permanently ban the practice of partisan gerrymanders, or whether they will, with their newly stolen and extreme right-wing majority on the court, issue a ruling next month that essentially allows the practice to continue for at least another decade after the upcoming 2020 census. Joining us now to discuss the very real effects of gerrymandering and his case that such uh, gerrymanders have now led to the recent spate of radical abortion laws that ban abortions after five or six weeks in states like Georgia and Ohio, after a fetal heartbeat can be heard before many women even realize they are pregnant, and a bunch of other states, is our friend and my former editor at Salon, David Daly, author of the book whose title I cannot read on FCC radio, so I call it Rat Flipped, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. You'll have to figure out what the actual title is. Dave is also now a senior fellow at fairvote.org where he continues his fight for the most important issue we face in this country, fair elections for all, and yes, an end to the extreme partisan gerrymandering of our democracy. Welcome back, David Daly, to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. It's good to be back. Who knew we'd wake up today in West Eros? Uh, would be more of a democracy than America. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, anywhere at this point is getting to be more of a democracy than America. Let's start uh, on that point in Georgia. Uh, where it's uh, new Republican governor, Brian Kemp, has uh, just signed a radical so-called fetal heartbeat abortion bill in a state where even if, David, even if the 100% unverifiable touchscreens that are used in Georgia uh, that were used to record his so-called victory, even if those are correct, and I have no reason to believe they are, uh, he oversaw his own election as Secretary of State to barely defeat Democrat Stacey Abrams' Uh, to become governor with 50.2% over uh, over Abrams there. In such an evenly divided state, how do you see partisan gerrymandering as playing a part in this newly radical policy in the Peach State? It's amazing. When the Republicans had the power to redraw all of the state legislative maps in Georgia, mm -hmm. 
back in 2011, after the last U.S. census, mm-hmm. they drew themselves such perfect surgical districts that they rendered essentially all of the state districts completely non-competitive. To the extent that in 2016, mm-hmm. Georgia set a, a record in the country for the highest number of seats that did not have a major party uh, challenger in them. And it was 81.2% of all of the, of the state house seats in Georgia. No uh, partisan challenger. Voters had literally no choice at all. It got a little bit better in 2018. It was down to about 65, 66%. Mm-hmm. But it was also 33 of the 56 uh, state Senate seats mm. on the ballot this time. So heavily gerrymandered, voters had no choice at all. In the middle of the decade, when it looked like changing demographics mm-hmm. in Georgia might make a couple of those Republican seats more competitive, Republicans went back in in the middle of the decade and fortified their lines. They drew even stronger ones in the middle of the decade. Mm. This is what they have done to essentially make the only elections that matter in Georgia a party primaries, yeah. which push everything to the extreme, and you end up with these radical abortion bills, and you end up with legislators who can't be defeated. And I, wa- and I want to ask you about, because uh, we have a very similar situation in Ohio, as I mentioned, but, you know, since you raised the point of the lack of challenge in so many districts in Georgia, and, and uh, I, I'm not sure if the same is true in Ohio or not, but is that really a failing of these, uh, well, or, or I should say maybe a success of these maps as drawn by the GOP, or is it a failing of the political parties themselves to not be more aggressive in that state. Why Why did so many of those uh, state Senate seats, for example, simply go unchallenged? Because there's no legitimate chance of winning them. And so there's nobody who wants to spend 18 months of their life running a race that they stand zero chance of winning, mm-hmm. and they can't raise any money for that race. Um, so uh, I think a lot of people look at it and they say, what's the point? Um, but the point of it, is that when the lines are drawn to send a radically unrepresentative version of the state Mm -hmm. to the legislature, you end up with a legislature that doesn't represent the actual wishes of the people. Georgia is a very close 50-50 state. Mm -hmm. We saw that in the states of the Abrams election. 55,000 votes separate Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams in that race. Um, And yet, Republicans hold an edge in the legislature thanks to their maps that Democrats stand no chance of winning. All of the Democrats in the state have been surgically drawn and packed into as few districts as possible. Republicans are able to maintain all of the other ones, um, and you end up with an extreme of the extreme with complete control over public policy in the state. And we have a similar case in Ohio, which, as you know, Georgia has become a swing state in recent years, uh, is now finally being seen as one in any event. Ohio has been a swing state for at least a decade, at least in presidential elections. And in Ohio, uh, well, I haven't seen the polling in Georgia, but in Ohio, you note that polling reveals that a majority of Ohioans 
uh, Ohioans uh, oppose the extreme abortion bill that was just passed uh, in in the Buckeye state. Same situation there where they feel that uh, even though the state is evenly divided, they can get away with anything they want because yeah, very of much the, so. Yeah. Um, Democrats routinely get more votes uh, statewide than Republicans for Ohio's House, mm-hmm. and yet Republicans have uh, two thirds of the seats. Um, and that hasn't changed at all over the course of this decade. There were five races in Ohio in 2018 that were within five percentage points. So five of 110 races were... F- five of 110... Five of 110 races were closed, meaning also that the the Democratic races were uh, also just huge yep. uh, victories, giving uh, Republicans... Pack all of the Democrats yeah. into into as few districts as possible. The Democrats win those races going away with 75-80% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Republicans win their races with, you know, 58-60-62% of the vote. Uh, but in these, you know, polarized partisan times, uh, when you essentially vote for your team laundry mm-hmm. no matter what, yeah. um, you know, 58% is essentially an automatic win. It- uh, and it stands up even in a wave year like... 2018. Um, Democrats couldn't make any gains in Ohio, even when they won more votes. And now there is, you know, an extreme six-week fetal heartbeat abortion law in a state that a majority of voters do not want, but that a majority of voters can't do anything to get rid of. Is it fair to say, David Daly, that if it were not for the gerrymandering, if these were, if if the the state districts, uh, particularly in these cases in the state assemblies and, and Senate and so forth, if it uh, reflected the actual sort of 50-50 nature of those two states, that we would not see these type of radical abortion bills, while well, they may be introduced, but not uh, not being passed and, and signed by the governors in those states. I mean, it seems like this very directly goes to gerrymandering. This could not happen these radical uh, anti-abortion bills could not happen were it not for gerrymandering. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think radically gerrymandered districts send a different kind of legislator to the state capitol, and then they are able to behave in a different way. They have no reason to compromise, no reason to even think about representing the entire state or all of the people in their district. They are representing districts that were crafted to create one-party rule, um, and and often that is one-party minority rule, and that is what we have in state after state. Democrats can win 56, 57, 58 percent of the vote and still not come within sniffing grounds of a majority of seats. Republicans, on the other hand, drew maps, you know, not only in Ohio and Georgia, but in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in North Carolina, in which they are able to maintain complete control of state legislatures with as little as 44 or 45% of the statewide vote. This is a major crisis for representative democracy. And yeah, I was going to say that that of course extends to uh, not just the the, the, the state uh, legislative maps, but to the congressional maps as well. And congressman after congressman who feels that he has no worries on the Republican side. He can be as absolutely radical as he wants 
because ain't nobody going to challenge him in his district back home. It has been, uh, you know, so thoroughly crafted to make sure that the Republican retains that majority. Now, you also know, David, that uh, gerrymandering in large part created the conditions under which Michigan's legislature could override the will of the voters and pass the emergency manager bill that led to the Flint water crisis. It also explains how the North Carolina legislature was able to use so-called surgical precision to suppress the state's black vote, something we've talked about quite a bit on this program uh, coming out of North Carolina, uh, and how uh, proudly progressive Wisconsin assaulted collective bargaining and labor unions. This is a really wonky topic, uh, but one that really underscores, it seems, just about everything we do in this country, David, uh, regarding public policy at both the state and federal level. Have you been encouraged about the response to your book, whose title I cannot say, uh, since uh, since you published a year or two ago on this. You know, m- my book had to have a title that you could not say, but that your audience is smart enough to figure out. Um, <laughs> because a few years ago, people didn't really know what gerrymandering was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was seen, you're right, as this wonky thing that made people's eyes glaze over and reminded them of mm-hmm. falling asleep in civics class. Uh-huh. Um, and I think... What has happened over the last couple of years is that we now understand that gerrymandering is at the heart of this disconnect between the politics and policy that people want and the kind of one-party minority rule that we get in state after state and the lack of competitiveness that we see in Washington. And you are beginning to see in blue states and red states and Mm -hmm. purple states Um, All of these initiatives um, in Michigan, Colorado, Utah, um, Ohio, and Missouri last year, uh, uh, voters, um, and the only one of those that was close was Utah. All of the other ones, uh, one with more than 60% of the vote, voters stepping up and saying, you know, we don't think that politicians ought to have the right to draw their own lines and choose their own voters and entrench themselves in office thanks to this powerful technology. Um, essentially for a decade, regardless of what the voters say, and then they're able to kind of insulate themselves mm-hmm. from the voters and go off to these state capitals and do whatever they want without uh, fear of, of being called back. Okay. Um, and you are also seeing a whole number of federal courts and state courts, um, and these are are bipartisan judges, Mm -hmm. appointed often by Reagan, appointed by both Bushes, as well as by Clinton and Obama, uh, that are saying, we've got a problem with toxic partisan gerrymandering. Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, Wisconsin, federal judges in all, um, in four districts, Mm -hmm. um, overturned maps in all of those states and called them unconstitutional. Um, You had the state the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania last year overturned its map as an extreme a partisan gerrymander. And, and so that was a map that always produced 13 Republicans and five Democrats <laughs> out of a blue state. When they got a fair map last year, 
it immediately went to nine nine. And and so far, yeah, when it now it's even. Now it's as it should be. Um, and I so uh, I've got just a, a minute or two left here, uh, David Daly. I want to hit both of these points though, because uh, first you talk about those initiatives, the ballot initiatives that were passed by the voters in Ohio, Michigan, Utah, Missouri, Colorado to uh, essentially develop independent redistricting commissions uh, after the 2020 census. That's good news. But it took us 10 years to get to that point. My concern on, on this point, can existing GOP legislative majorities in those states actually undermine those initiatives. We saw Republican lawmakers do, for example, something similar in Florida last week where they've undermined Constitutional Amendment 4 that voters had adopted statewide by 65 percent last November in Florida to give former felons the right to vote. And the GOP figured out how to undermine it. Are we seeing similar efforts by those uh, states for Republicans to undermine their own Republican voters in the legislature? We certainly are. What happened in Florida was outrageous, but now we are seeing legislatures in Michigan and legislatures in Missouri try to undermine the independent commissions that the voters passed in both of those states. Uh, a democracy is not going to be saved in this country by any given election. It, this is going to be a continuous push and pull, and we can't simply sit back after 2018 and say, well, we passed these initiatives in the states, and so everything is going to be okay now. It's not going to be. Uh, this is a war for the future of the country. It is a war for who gets barriers put in front of, mm-hmm. of their road to the ballot box and who doesn't. And it is the most crucial fight that we face in this country, uh, and it needs to be engaged and fought every single day. And that, of course, is just one of the reasons why we engage and fight every single day on on the broadcast and bradblog.com on this very issue. The other point you raised, David, the uh, the courts, uh, you write, are fed up. Federal judges have now overturned these maps in state after state after state. Well, that is the good news, you know, in Wisconsin, Maryland, North Carolina, Ohio, Michigan. Uh, but. Uh, on the state level, that's good news when it's a state court that does it, like in Pennsylvania. But the federal court rulings may all be nullified by the GOP's stolen U.S. Supreme Court, which is about to issue their ruling in two cases. I think the entire House map, uh, congressional map in North Carolina, was repeatedly found to be an unconstitutional gerrymander by Republicans, and a U.S. House district in Maryland was found to be unconstitutionally drawn by Democratic lawmakers. I know you were in the courtroom for oral argument uh, in those uh, those cases a month or two ago, as I recall, what impression did you get from the Supreme Court justices as to how they might finally rule in this uh, in these cases, or if they will rule at all? Um, I think that this is entirely in the hands of Brett Kavanaugh right now, which um, may not be where most of us wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, in many ways, this is up to Roberts and it's up to Kavanaugh. You've got four liberal justices on the court who have already said that they think that this is something that the courts can find an answer to. Um, And you've got essentially three conservative justices who have said, we don't want any part of this. Roberts has been skeptical. Um, Kavanaugh, on the other hand, seemed to understand the dangers 
of gerrymandering, perhaps because I believe he lives in the Maryland yeah. district uh, yes. that was so radically gerrymandered. So yep. He was not a fan of that. Um, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen here. You have all of these judges, bipartisan judges, sending a message to the courts that we all think that the courts have a role here and that there is an easily manageable solution. Um, but will Roberts and Kavanaugh endorse that or override it? You know, nothing other than the future of democracy that rests on that decision. Yeah, that's all it is. Uh, and, uh, by the way, uh, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, who I think was also at the hearing that day, uh, we spoke to him on the show, he uh, also cited Brett Kavanaugh, uh, of all justices, who may be the one who ends up uh, siding with the appointed Democrats here for a, uh, a, a a majority. I don't want folks to get too excited because... It would be <laughs> wild if the one example of yeah. a Democratic gerrymander in the 2010 redistricting cycle ended up being the thing that actually got us a national constitutional standard that, that reigned in partisan gerrymandering. Is there a possibility, I know you got to go, uh, David, is there a possibility that Kavanaugh could end up uh, uh, ruling with the uh, Democrats, essentially, with the liberals on this when it comes to Maryland, but with the uh, right-wingers when it comes to the North Carolina gerrymander? I think most observers think that's unlikely. Um, but certainly, if these guys, when it comes to election law in the past... Um, I say Bush versus Gore, have been known to make it up as they go along. I would not put anything past them at this point. David Daly, uh, author of Rat Flipped, sort of, Rat Flipped, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. Uh, He's now a senior fellow at fairvote.org. You can find uh, his work over there at fairvote.org. You can find him on the Twitters at DaveDaly3, that's the number three, Dave Daly 3, and of course his article at New Republic, which I will uh, link to uh, from bradblog.com tonight, headlined How Gerrymandering Leads to Radical Abortion Laws. Dave Daly, always great talking with you, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Okay, a couple of uh, pretty major breaking stories while I was talking to David there, and another thought or two in the, what, three minutes we have left? That's coming <laughs> up right after this on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. I will talk about the changes from the UK's Guardian in a moment, but this breaking news, a federal judge has now ruled that uh, Donald Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA, must in fact turn over Trump financial documents to Congress as per the uh, congressional subpoena they received from uh, from the U.S. House. Uh, I think there was no question that that was going to happen. 
Now it's going to be appealed, no doubt, by the White House and no doubt work its way up in some fashion to the U.S. Supreme Court. Also, the White House has ordered uh, former White House counsel Don McGahn, who doesn't work there anymore, so it's questionable how much they can uh, actually order him, uh, but has ordered White House counsel Don McGahn to not comply with another lawful subpoena from the U.S. House to testify to Congress, in as he was uh, had been scheduled for, uh, I think this week was supposed to happen. Right. Whether it happens or not remains to be seen as our constitutional crisis continues in this country, along with, of course, our climate crisis in this planet. The UK's Guardian has updated its style guide to introduce terms that more accurately describe the environmental crises facing the world, according to The Guardian. Instead of climate change, the preferred terms are now climate emergency, climate crisis, or climate breakdown. I want to say that's good news, but I hate to say it's good news that they're now going to describe it as what it is. It's good news about bad news is, I guess, one way to put it. Also, uh, global heating is now favored over global warming at the UK Guardian. Uh, although none of the original terms are banned. Uh, here's one that I think you'll like, though. Other terms that have been updated include, uh, well, the use of wildlife rather than biodiversity. That's good since no one knows what biodiversity actually means. Uh, fish populations instead of fish stocks. Yeah. Well, that seems reasonable. But here's the one you'll like, Des. Uh, instead of climate science uh, skeptic, Instead of climate skeptic, it will now be climate science denier for the UK Guardian. As it should be, because that's what they are. That's it. Uh, in September, the BBC uh, accepted its it gets uh, coverage of climate change, quote, wrong too often and told staff you do not need a denier to balance the debate. Took them long enough. Didn't it, though? Uh, don't know that the U.S. media, however, has caught on, but we'll keep trying. Hope springs eternal. Indeed. All right. That's it. Got to get out. My thanks to Fair Votes David Daly and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it or any other we have ever done for free at bradblog.com. That is only possible thanks to those of you who click on the donate button at bradblog.com to uh, help us continue to do what we try to do every day here. You can stop by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a monthly subscription, which really helps a lot. Thank you to those who have done so. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Find me and share what we do there as well. We'll see you there. And then we will see you again right here tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.